There's this moment in Jesus' ministry that we're going to look at today, and it's in Luke chapter 10. And we're starting a new sermon series today. Uh, We went through, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've gone through the talking about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit's role is in your life and my life and what it means to be filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, we talked about last week. And now we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're actually going to spend our summer months uh, looking at the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And what we're going to ask ourselves is this question. If we are empowered by the Spirit, if we are filled by the Spirit, how then are we to go and live our lives? empowered and filled by the Spirit. And the parables of Jesus are a great way to do that. But as we get started, I just want to take a moment and clarify what we mean when we use that word parable. Because parables are usually stories, sometimes metaphors, that Jesus uses in his teaching to make a point. And the middle chapters of Luke are, are filled with these parables. That's what we'll be looking at over the coming weeks. And so through them, we understand better Jesus' teaching. I mean, you know how it goes when the pastor gets up and babbles on and on about theology and Greek and Hebrew and all these things, and then they tell a story to make the point. And you say, oh, thank goodness, they're finally telling a story. And you start to understand better. That's what Jesus does as well in his teaching. And so the parables are key things to look at to understand Jesus' teaching. I'll tell you what parables are not. Parables are not, as they might sometimes be treated, they're not fables. Fables are different. You might listen to a fable, you might hear a fable, and you might learn a life hack or a life lesson. So you say, oh, you know, sometimes I want to be speedy and fast and, and go, 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 but sometimes it's good to slow down like a tortoise and to be slow and steady because at the end of the day, if I run and run, I'll get tired, but slow and steady runs the race. That's a fable. That's a life lesson. But Jesus' parables are different. Jesus is explaining to the people in the first century, and he's explaining to you and to me what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. What it looks like to be people who are part of the kingdom of God. And that's different than learning a life lesson and then going out and trying to do that on our own. This is about if we are the people we claim to be, how then will we go out into the world and live? And that's where the parables are so helpful to us. And there's this scene in Luke chapter 10. And it's one of these stories that if you've been around church for a while, my guess is you've heard this one before. In fact, this is one of those Bible stories that even if it's your first time in church, we might read some of these verses and you'll say to yourself, oh, I know these. I've heard this before. And some of you may be hearing it for the very first time. However you come to this passage, we're glad that you are here. But for me, someone that's been around church for a while, this is a a very familiar text. And I don't know if ever before in studying this text, I've preached it before, I've read it before, if I've ever fully appreciated, and I'm still just starting to appreciate the the context around what is happening here. And I'd like to take a moment before we dive into the parable itself and just think about for a moment what's happening in Jesus's ministry and what's going on. As we come to Luke chapter 10, there's this moment where Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and he's talking to his disciples. A lot has happened. They've seen miracles. 
They've heard Jesus teach. They've sent out missionaries already earlier in Luke chapter 10. And Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he's saying to them, you're blessed to see all this and you're blessed to hear all this and you're blessed to experience all of this. And so here's Jesus seated with his disciples and likely there were people that were seated around as well. And while Jesus is talking to his disciples, maybe even mid-sentence, a man stands up, doesn't move. That would be awkward enough. Everyone's sitting down listening to Jesus teach and someone just stands. You can imagine everybody, if they didn't turn and look at him, they're definitely looking out of the corner of their eye, this gentleman. I mean, even more so because it was clear from the way he was dressed and everyone in this crowd would have known anyway that he was a man of great importance. He stood up in the text Luke is going to call him a lawyer. And when we hear the word lawyer, we we picture a certain thing, right? But this is not lawyer like, uh, like, did you get into an accident and not your fault, lawyer. This is not lawyer like a prosecuting attorney in in a court of law. This lawyer is different. This is someone who has spent their entire life understanding the law of God, knows the law of God, and is there to help people interpret and apply the law of God in their lives. So you might think that this man who stood up and Jesus would be on the same team. I mean, here's a man who's spent his entire life learning about the law and teaching about the law and helping people apply the law. And now here's Jesus, this amazing rabbi, this amazing teacher who is doing miracles, who has come and people are, are, are listening to him and they're learning more about God and God's law. But to the lawyer, Jesus was no partner in ministry. Jesus is the enemy in ministry. Because Jesus, the more people who listen to him, the more people who come to him, the less people are going to listen to the lawyer and his friends, the less power they have in society. And so when he stands up, Luke is going to tell us he doesn't stand up to recognize Jesus. He doesn't stand up to thank Jesus. He stands up to test Jesus. So this is a tense situation. And the disciples are wondering what's going to happen. The people that are scattered around are wondering what's going to happen. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we read these words. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is the big question. This is not a small question. This is not, teacher, how should I live my life today? This is the big one. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's a test to see if Jesus will say what they would say. To see if Jesus' answer is in line with what the religious leaders of the day would teach about the law of God. 
Jesus. He may have loved the children and healed people, but he's no pushover. And he looks back at the man and doesn't give him the satisfaction. He said to him in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You're a lawyer. You tell me. And the man says, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The man shows that he knows his law. He quotes here from Deuteronomy and he quotes from Leviticus, two of the five books of the Torah, God's law. And he does well. That's the answer. Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. I mean, you can feel the power shift here, can't you? This man stands up, tries to test Jesus. Jesus says, basically, I mean, you, you know the answer to this. What's wrong with you? And he says, yeah, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yep, do that. He's still standing. Everyone else is still sitting. So what's he going to do? He lobs the ball over to Jesus, and Jesus just lobs it right back. And so Luke says here in, in, in verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself. And I got to tell you, up until I studied the passage for this sermon, I always thought that to justify himself meant to think about eternal life and to earn eternal life. In order to earn eternal life, the man says to each other. But I'm fully convinced right now after restudying this passage that to justify himself means he's trying to justify the reason he's still standing. He's trying not to look like a fool. And so he comes up with another question as best as he can. Well then, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies like this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is where I think we have to be careful. It really sounds like a fable, doesn't it? 
It sounds like a, a story that's meant to help us live better. But that's not a parable, that's a, that's a fable. So we could take this story and we could say, well, so that means if I'm going along my way and I see someone who's been robbed and beaten on the side of the road, I'm not going to pass by, I'm going to stop and help them. Now, certainly that's what you should do. But that's not why Jesus tells this story. And I think what God has impressed upon me over and over over the last couple of weeks as we've been looking at this that we, is that we have to really understand why Jesus is telling this story to this man. Because the man comes to Jesus looking for a theological answer. The man comes to Jesus looking for an intellectual answer. But Jesus turns around and gives him a spiritual answer. And the question is why? Because Jesus looked at the lawyer and knew he didn't have a knowledge issue. He didn't have a theology issue. His theology was solid. He didn't have a, a lack of understanding about what God says. But he had a problem with its application. And so he knew that there was something wrong with the man's heart. And I'll tell you, if we walk away from this parable today and our only takeaway is, yeah, if I see someone in trouble, I'll help them. We could walk away and still have the heart issue too. The same heart issue the lawyer had. I think what Jesus is saying to the lawyer and he's saying to you and to me is that there are times in life where it is possible to be so consumed with being right that you forget to do what is right. That it is possible in life to be so consumed with being right that you miss what is doing right. The miss doing right. The problem with this lawyer is, like I said, not that he misunderstands anything. He understands it. It's all in there. In fact, he has a great strength. He knows God's word. He knows God's law. He gets to spend his days in that presence. But you know, recently I heard someone who's the president of a company. He said, you know, I always look at my strengths as shadows of my weaknesses. And I thought that was an interesting way to look at that. Because every strength that we have has a tipping point. Every strength that we have has a tipping point where it, it moves into something else. And this man had this strength of knowledge about God, about understanding what was right. But that knowledge was so strong that it was keeping him from being the kind of person that did what was right. You see, it's no uh, mistake in this parable who Jesus uh, makes the characters to be. He has a priest come pass on the other side. He has a Levite come, pass around this man. Those would be the lawyer's buddies. Those are his friends. And here's the thing that's interesting. I think to us, we see the priest and the Levite, they pass around and they, they don't help and we roll our eyes and we say, oh, come on, guys. Come on, fellas. 
Stop and help out what's wrong with you. But do you know what? To the lawyer and to the audience listening in that moment, they may have looked at that and said, yeah, that's the right thing to do. They did the right thing. That's what they should have done for at least two reasons. One is there's a sociological reason, I would say, and that was, there was they were born into a priestly class. This was not something that you went to school for. It was not something that you were appointed to. If you were a priest or a Levite, and you can go into the Old Testament and read about it, you were born into a certain tribe, into a certain family, into a certain lineage. And they existed above other people as the representatives of God and his law to the people. So for them to lower themselves publicly into this sort of messy situation would have looked wrong culturally. So they would have been right to walk around. But you could even look at the Old Testament and argue that theologically they would have been right to walk around. Because in order for a priest and a Levite to perform their duties, they had to remain ceremonially clean so that they could go into the temple and do the work of the Lord. If they touch this robber, or if, I'm sorry, if they touch this gentleman who's been beaten by the robbers, they will become ceremonially unclean. And so all of their work of the ministry will have to stop until they can walk through the process of being made clean. So they're saying to themselves, if I touch this gentleman, now all these people that I minister to and all these people that come to me to hear what God says, they will no longer be able to hear it. And so while we, I think, hear this parable and we say to ourselves, that's so ridiculous that they wouldn't help. I think the lawyer and many of the people in the crowd, maybe even some of the disciples who grew up as Jewish men would look at this story and say, yeah, that's right. of course they did. Of course they did. That's what they should have done. Someone else will take care of this situation. But Jesus is saying, when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, in your going, as you go, you're able to see situations and do what it is God's calling you to do. And so, yes, they kept the letter of the ceremonial law by not helping this man. But they broke the greater law of not loving their neighbor. If the second one is loving their neighbor, then, yeah, they kept the little tiny detail of the law, but they broke the big one. And Jesus is saying there's a problem when we're so consumed with being right at the very sort of detail and letter of the law that it stops us from doing what is right if we are the kind of people who love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I was at a conference a number of years ago, um, and a, one of the guests at the conference was a man by the name of Captain Ron Johnson. And even though this was probably 2015, I would guess, so a number of years ago now, I still remember his, his talk so clearly. Captain Ron Johnson is a state trooper, at least was at the time, a state trooper in Missouri. You remember in 2014, some of you will remember this very clearly, a young man named Michael Brown was shot and killed by the police in Ferguson. And so as a result of that moment, lines were drawn and marches were happening and protests were happening. And it got to the point 
where there was on one side of one street a line of police officers in riot gear and on the other side of the street a line of protesters. And they were there for days. Do you remember this? In fact, even Barack Obama, who was president at the time, kept calling for peace and asking people to, 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 to behave civilly and, and try to figure this all out even as they fought for what was right. Captain Ron Johnson, a state trooper in Missouri, got a phone call. It was the governor. Ron Johnson is a, is a, a black man and decorated police officer. And the governor said, I want you to leave your home in Kansas City and go to Ferguson, which is outside of St. Louis, and help. You're in charge because no one else can figure this out. I mean, that's not next door. All right, I've lived, I've lived uh, in Boston now for 20 years, which I can't believe, but I'm originally from the Midwest, right? Aben and I were both from Omaha here. And so, and so uh, I know if you're from Boston, you've lived here, I know how the map goes in your mind, right? It's like Boston, Worcester, New York, Los Angeles, right? That's the map of the, of the country. But in the middle of the country, there's some things and some places. And so Missouri is one of those places. And... And, uh, and St. Louis is on the east side of Missouri. Kansas City's on the west side of Missouri. And so if he's driving, I mean, even as a, as a state trooper, if he's able to drive quickly, right, you're talking hours in the car as he's getting there. He's saying, uh, praying and asking the Lord what, what God would have him do when he gets there. And he said when he got there and he saw the lines, and he could understand both sides. He said there were a couple of things he did. First, when the neighborhood leaders would have meetings. Because the reality is there were, there were many leaders that were not the ones that were doing damage to the city. When they had their meetings, he would go and he would sit and listen. When there were marches, he asked if he could join. They said no. So instead, he said he went to the back of the parade, kept a little bit of distance between him and the end of the parade, and walked behind, picked up the trash, just to be out there, in the neutral zone. And then he said, finally, I walked up to the line of my fellow police officers, and I said, take off your helmet, put down your shield, walk across the street and ask someone their name. When the riots in Ferguson came to an end, the news had all sorts of pictures of protesters hugging police officers and police officers crying and hugging protesters. Maybe you remember some of those images. Captain Ron Johnson told us at the conference, he said, that, that's why we had those images. Now, there's a whole lot more discussion to go on. And obviously, there's much more work to be done. But in that moment, in that moment, he was able to say, listen, our focus on being right, both of us, is stopping us from doing what's right. And there's so many places in our lives. Listen, I can, come up, I can come up with so many areas in my life, so many times where I was insisted on being right, 
happens in marriage, happens as a parent, happens in all sorts of places when you're driving. (laughs) That focus on being right, which is a good thing. It's good to be right about who God is and that this is his word and that Jesus Christ is the savior and the hope of the world. It's good to be right about those things. But when being right about those things stops us from doing right in the moment, we have a problem. And that's what Jesus is telling this this lawyer. You're all so good at being right about everything, but you don't do what is right. And it is possible to be so consumed with being right that you miss doing what is right. There's another character in this story, though. And this character is the neighbor. And Jesus says to this gentleman, and he says to us, he says, not only is it a problem when being right stops you from doing what is right, but you're also asking the wrong question, he tells the gentleman in, in, in such words. He says, He's saying, I think, the question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, how should I be a neighbor? That's the question. It doesn't change based on the other person who you should be in Jesus Christ. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you just are that regardless of who the other person is. It's no mistake that the hero of our story is a Samaritan. If there was one person that this lawyer despised, I mean one person that he couldn't stand, it was the Samaritan. The Samaritans were of mixed ethnicity. The Jewish People, if you know the Jewish history, have been enslaved and held captive multiple times. And when they were enslaved by the Babylonians, some of the Jewish people ended up having children and creating families in that Babylonian captivity. And the descendants of that are the Samaritans. So for the Jews, the Samaritans were pictures of compromise captivity. And not only that, but they also disagreed on where to worship. The Jews worshiped in Jerusalem and the Samaritans had built their own temple where they worshiped. And so there was this great divide as the lawyers trying to teach about God. You had these crazy Samaritans with their own temple saying they're also part of God's people and that people should come worship where they worship. Who is it for you that when they come on the news, you roll your eyes and you say, you got to be kidding me. I mean, who is it that when they come on, they're like talking head there. It's like three seconds before you're going to change the channel. Who is that person? For some of you, it's a politician you can think of right now. For others, it's the leader of a movement. You watch that 
terrible reality of the school shooting in Texas and, and all the other, other things that are happening around that issue and the terrible events that are happening in our country. And then you're going to have two people on the screen. One is going to say, we got to protect the Second Amendment. One is going to say, we have to pass more laws. Which one drives you crazy? It's Pride Month. in school, it's in front of churches. Maybe it's that for you. Maybe it's Christians that drive you crazy. If so, this is a real nightmare situation for you this morning. You are surrounded. But all of us have that, don't we? That face pops up with that scroll below it, and we say, oh, come on. That's the Samaritan for the lawyer. And Jesus makes him the hero. The lawyer can't even say his name. Which one was the neighbor? The one who showed mercy? It reminds me of something that I might say if I was downstairs and my wife was upstairs and uh, one of our three kids destroyed a room or, or spilled something all over the place, I might go upstairs and I might look at my wife and I might say, your kid just made a mess, right? <laughs> That's like the lawyer. He can't say Samaritan. He's just like, you know, yeah, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. And the lawyer had to say, you've got to be kidding me if you think I'm going to go and be like a Samaritan. So if Jesus told you this parable, he'd just swap out Samaritan for whoever that person is. Because here's the thing, is they may not believe what is right, but in that moment they're doing what is right. And Jesus is saying, if your insistence on being right is stopping you from doing what is right, you need to check yourself. And I got to tell you, I think that this is so important for us in our culture today because it doesn't matter what the issue is, we got lines drawn up on each side. And we're across the street from one another on almost every single thing that's out there right now. And it's so easy as Christians because as I said before, I mean, I think we're right. I think God is who he says he is in, the, in his word. I think this book is the word of God. I think this is how you should, you should live your life is everything that's inside of here. I think Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, that he came and lived and died and rose again, and that the only way to heaven is through him. I believe all of that. I think I'm right. But when I encounter other people who don't think that way, who are different from me, We have every reason to believe in this parable that the man who was beaten and robbed is a Jewish person coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, out of the city of Jerusalem. It's almost, almost certain that he's a Jewish person. And the Samaritan, I mean, as much as the Jews hated the Samaritans, the Samaritans felt the same way. He could have easily went by. 
But Jesus says, if you really love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you'll do this. You'll love in this way. You won't be so consumed with being right that you can't show love and grace and mercy to people. The lawyer assumes he's doing the first and asks about the second. He assumes he's loving the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is his job. This is what he does. And he asks about the second. And Jesus comes back at him and says, you can't even do the second. He gives him this impossible situation and says, you can't even do the second because you don't even know how to do the first. If you were doing the first, the second would just happen. You wouldn't have to ask about it. It would just happen. Because the reality is, is that you and I, every single person in here, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, you and I are the person who was coming out of Jerusalem down to Jericho, was attacked by robbers and left beaten on the side of the road. We were sinful. We had walked away from God. We were lost and lonely on our own. And Jesus Christ, who had every right to walk past us, he would have been all within his rights not to stop. Made himself nothing, the apostle Paul says. And came down to this earth and stooped next to us. And by his wounds, we are healed. And he shows us mercy and grace that we did not deserve. And Jesus is saying, if you love me and love my father, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You will do it. So worry less about who your neighbor is and who you're supposed to be for and against. And worry more about how to be neighborly. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then go and live out the mercy and grace that Jesus gives to us. And now listen, I know it's hard. I know it's hard, especially when the other person is insisting on being right. So they're not doing what is right. That's when it's hard. Not when they're a nice person and you just disagree. But when they're the ones screaming at you that you're wrong. When they're the ones that are putting their foot down and are insisting that you do what they say. And yet Jesus would say, if you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, don't give in on being right. That's not what the point is. Don't give in on being right, but show this kind of mercy. Show this kind of grace. I'm going to invite our, our worship team to come up. And as they come, I'll just offer you one, one last thing. As someone who believes that we're correct about who God is and who his son is and how we inherit eternal life through Jesus Christ, I want nothing more than more people in our world to come and know that truth as well. I get excited when I hear Nick talk about being on campus at BC and students responding to the gospel. I get excited knowing that planning Belmont six and a half years ago and still having our campus here in Burlington, that we've reached more people for Jesus Christ than if we had all stayed in this room. 
But how do we get that done? How do we see it happen is the question, especially in such a divided world. This week I was thinking about a book that I read uh, last year. The book is called Think Again, and it's by Adam Grant, who is a professor at Wharton School of Business. He's a business psychologist. And in his book, he, he talks about a study that was done in the 70s by a gentleman named Neil Rackham. And Neil Rackham was trying to understand why there's certain negotiators that win all the time. So there's within negotiations people that aren't very good at it, even though it's their job. And then there's this large group of average negotiators, but some people always seem to win. There's like the top tier of negotiators. And Neil Rackham was wondering what separates them from everybody else? Wouldn't you love to be the top tier negotiator when it comes to winning people to Jesus Christ? So what did they do? He said there were three things they did really well. One is they focused on what they already held in common. Two, they tried to ask really good questions rather than make really good points. And three, they listened more than they spoke. It seems so counterintuitive to winning an argument. But it's not about arguing people into faith. It's not about arguing people into being more moral. It's about winning people to Jesus Christ. And as they start to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, they will be transformed. The lawyer wanted information, he needed transformation. We can't just give people information and expect them to be transformed. They need to be invited into that transformation. And so who is it right now? Who is it in your family? Who is it in your friend group? Who is it in your school classroom? Who is it at your workplace? who you're so different than and disagree with so much and they're so vocal about what they think and that it's just reaching that tipping point where you're so concerned about being right in this situation that it's starting to tip down so that you're no longer doing what is right in that interaction. I'm gonna ask you to do something as we close this morning. Would you pray for that person? could be somebody that you know really well. It could be someone that you only see on TV. Would you pray for them right now? That God would open up their heart to what is right. That God would keep you in the place that he's calling you to. So that you might not only believe what is right, but that you might also do what is right. God, we come before you this morning and we come humbly recognizing that there have been so many places in our lives and throughout the years where we have hurt relationship with you and with others because we were so focused on being correct. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness in those places and we thank you for the mercy that you continue to throw, show us through Jesus Christ. 
Father, we pray for those people now. Would you touch their hearts? Would you help us to love? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and let's join together.